When I was a youth minister, every summer we'd take our youth group on a, on a, on a trip called Trek, which is hiking through the Colorado mountains. And in um, this one particular year that we took our, our youth group on, on a trek, um, we were, first day would typically be your, one of your longer hikes of the day. And what the, what the trek guides would do is they would take your group to what they would call high camp. And so you'd have to get from, from you know, ground zero, from the base floor, and you'd have to hike up pretty far up so you can uh, set up high camp. And so as this one particular year that I'm with my youth group and with these Trek uh, college students, these Trek leaders and these guides, I realized, and this is about an hour and a half to two hours into our first hike up towards the high, uh, high camp. It's about an hour and a half into our, our trek, into our hike, I realized we've made at least two circles and we have not gained any elevation in this hike. And so I'm paying attention now, and I'm watching our guides and what's going on, and I realize as we make a third, at least the third time I noticed, a third circle around, again, not making any progress in our hike, I slowly hike up towards the front where our guides are, and I begin to question. There's like, there's like two or three of them, college students, and I begin to ask them. I said, hey, how much longer? Oh, well, it's just gonna, it's gonna be a little while longer. Don't worry. We're, we're heading that way. I said, okay. I said, what have we been doing the last two hours? And they, they looked at me, you know, like kind of like that wide eye, like, oh no, we've been caught. And they said, well, we, we're, we're gonna get up to high camp. I said, I know we're gonna get up to high camp, but when are we gonna get there? Oh, we're, we're gonna get there. I said, you know, we've made circles at least three times, right? We haven't gotten anywhere. And so as I kind of make this realization known to our leaders, they pull me aside and said, hey, we need you to know we're lost. <laughs> I said, I realized that. The problem is, is you're lost because I've never been here before. And so what happened was, is, is that they got off a certain trail into another trail and they had never been on that kind of trail before. And so they were hoping that they would eventually find, you know, recognize one of their things. And, and so to make a longer story even short, what we had to do is we had to call the boss man in to come up and find us and then he could lead us up to high camp. Well, I want you to, and the reason I tell that story is, is because that was day one. Of, of about five days of hiking and, and, and camping with these people. I want you to know, from that moment on, I did not trust our leaders. I was weary and cautious of every decision that these trek leaders made from that moment forward. Why? Because they didn't know what they were doing. They were just aimlessly leading our group hoping they would find a trail. Eventually, they lost all of my trust and what was going to happen over the next several days. And the reason I bring that story up is because I find it quite interest, interesting. The last couple of weeks, we've been, we've been hanging out in this, this little Old Testament book called Haggai. And Haggai is, is, is a prophet who speaks on behalf of God, and he tells the Israelites who have returned to Jerusalem to start rebuilding the temple. You see, you see, the Israelites haven't been rebuilding the temple up until this point. They have been rebuilding their homes, 
and they have been taking care of themselves, but they haven't taken care of God's house. And so Haggai, through the prompting of God, comes in and prompts the Israelites to continue the rebuilding of God's house. And in Haggai chapter 1, verse 14, which was a verse that we looked at in depth last week, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, son of Shethiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of the whole remnant of the people. They came and began to work on the house of the Lord Almighty, their God. It's a remarkable verse of Scripture because within 14 verses, Haggai, through the prompting of God, is able to get the, the entire Israelite community to move from comfort into action. And how does God do that? How does Haggai achieve that? Well, one, God stirs up the spirit of His people, which we talked in depth of last week. But the second observation that I want to make this morning out of Haggai chapter 1, verse 14. I want to take this, this observation, and I want to move us along in the rest of this message time this morning, is that it took leadership to begin the work on God's temple. That it begins with Zerubbabel and Joshua before it gets to the rest of Israel. That Haggai works with and speaks into the governor and the high priest before the rest of the people begin to work on what God is prompting them to do. And leadership, it would seem, and we can look at many other examples in Scripture, but Haggai seems to be a really nice launching pad into this conversation. Leadership seems to be critically important in God, for God's people to achieve what God desires of them. Because the remnant, as Haggai puts it, the remnant of Israel is not moving towards rebuilding of God's temple without the leadership of Haggai, Zerubbabel, and Joshua. And I think this is critically important. I think it's important for a two-and-a-half-year-old church. I think it's critically important for a church who is taking steps to get back into somewhat of a, into a, into a normal schedule or to a more desirable schedule as we take these steps of coming back into the cafeteria and doing and having first step Bible classes, having these, these hopes and dreams of this church. We look to the short term, but we also look to the long term. And in the midst of this community moving forward, we have to understand that we do have a blueprint of what church community looks like and moving into the future. Blueprints provide a graphic representation of what is to be built. We do not build without having the plans before us. We don't build beds or shelves. We don't install appliances. We don't, we don't go forward with, with construction unless we have the graphic representation of all the things that are to be done in order to build what we desire to build. And this is what's happening in Haggai. And so as, as we as a church look to the short term, right? We, we're hopeful sooner than later that we can gather in this space without the face coverings, right? We're hopeful that sooner than later that, that we can maybe, you know, uh, bring the aisles in just a little bit. We're hopeful that sooner than later we can have our, our full-out Bible class program and fellowship and all these different things that we've had to kind of uh, hold off for neighborly love over the last year plus. 
But we're also hopeful as a church that in the long-term future that we don't have to meet in the cafeteria because God provides and God prompts us to build on the nine and a half acres that we own just catty corner to this school. We own nine and a half acres debt-free from our planting church, and we have as a church been able to dream and to plan and to look towards what it might mean for the Heritage Church, for this community to build a home that's not simply brick and mortar, but a home that is kingdom vision ministry-centered, godly-driven at 4900 North Broadway. And so we're talking more than brick and mortar when we talk about leadership, when we talk about the future and the hope and the dreams of not only us as individuals, but as a church and a community. We're talking about more than brick and mortar. We're talking about the community of God's people. We're talking about His church. And I I love how Paul, I love the writings of Paul because Paul has one clear objective in anything that he writes. And and I encourage you to go read anything the Apostle Paul writes in the New Testament. There's one clear objective, whether he's writing to the church in Corinth or writing to the church in Philippi, he has one clear objective. Now, he has other things on his agenda when he writes to different churches in different contexts, but he has one clear objective, and it is to bring the church focused on Jesus Christ. He wants to bring the church and their vision and their, and their work and their actions and whatever may be going on back onto the most important thing, and that is Jesus Christ. Paul is constantly and consistently moving the church to, to bring their vision back onto the most important figure in their life, the most important relationship in their individual and communal lives. That is Jesus Christ. And so language like Colossians chapter 1, verses picking up in verse 15, Paul says, the Son, that is Jesus Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in Him, that's in Jesus, all things were created, things in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. So Paul writes to the church in Colossae, he he brings their focus and their attention back on the most important thing, the Son of and the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Why? Because you get to verse 18, because He is the head of their church. He's important because he is the leader of the community, of of the church community that has been established there. Paul talks a lot about community in 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 12 in particular. When Paul recognizes that Jesus is is the center and the leader of that church, he says in 1 Corinthians 12 verse 27, Now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. That while Paul recognizes and brings the church's attention back onto Jesus, he also begins to recognize that the community's part in this or their their relationship is to know who the leader of their church is. Now, how 
So the story of Paul in and of itself can tell us a lot about why Paul consistently and constantly brings those back into this. Because we see this consistent calling in disciples' lives. He does this with Peter. He does this with Andrew and James, John, and Paul in different ways. That all the disciples have a very similar calling. Follow me. That in Matthew chapter 9, verse 9, he's calling Matthew the simple calling of his disciples. Follow me. And if you're looking for a passion, if you're looking for direction in life, if you're trying to figure out if what you're doing right now is exactly what you're supposed to be doing, if you're, if you're looking for that so-called calling, trying to understand what, what God has prepared for you in this world at this time, then look no further than the simple calling that Jesus gives every disciple throughout all of history. Follow me. Because Jesus calls us to be those who follow him. And so Paul calls the church to, re, to reminder of this. He is the firstborn over all creation. He is the leader. You are a part of His church. You are a part of the body that which Jesus has established. Why? Because He has called you to follow Him. And this following is more than just being someone who, who, who occasionally listens or comes to church one day a week. It is understanding that as a disciple of Jesus Christ, we are the people who follow Him every day of our lives. That He is the leader. So more than that, in Haggai, it took a leadership to begin the work. But you know what it took? It took a leadership that was following God to begin the work on God's temple. That the movement of being comfortable and in your own world, and as Haggai puts it, uh, building your own paneled houses into the work of getting the timber and build, rebuilding the temple of God took a leadership that was in tune with God. And as a church, we must pay attention to this. Because as a church, our community can be hopeful for the now and the long-term future, but we must be hopeful that God raises up leadership that is following in the footsteps of Jesus Christ. Because community moves, community acts, community goes up the mountain and grabs the timber and begins to build because of the leadership that God establishes, which is why I want to take the few minutes we have left and look at John chapter 10 this morning. Because if we're going to talk about leadership of this church, we have to start with the leadership of Jesus Christ. Because we need to understand that Jesus, we need to embrace the concept and the truth that Jesus is the leader of this church. He is the leader of His church. And the imagery that seemingly is is woven throughout Scripture is this, is this pronounced and profound 
and visually appealing imagery of God as a shepherd. And Jesus embraces this imagery. John chapter 10, verse 11. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. Now, I want to read the con I want to read uh, John chapter 10 in its context, uh, verses 1 through 18, in just a moment. But I want to understand first to what exactly Jesus says when he says, I am the good shepherd. The idea of being a shepherd would have been well and fully known to those who heard him the first time, that heard these words audibly 2,000 years ago. Because the idea of a shepherd is someone who cares for the sheep. And so Jesus comes in and says at the, at the, at the, at, at the most common level is, I am the one who cares for you. Now the shepherd in this day and age in particular is someone who pastures the flock, who cares for the flock. And it's, be, it's best for us to understand that sheep, are fully and utterly helpless creatures. They can't do anything on their own. And I think a chicken without its head is better than a sheep with its head. They're utterly defenseless. They are totally dependent on the shepherd, and sheep are always in danger. Always in danger. Without the shepherd's watchful eye, sheep would always find themselves in dangerous positions, whether it be rushing water, heavy rainfall, robbers, or wolves, wherever they may be, sheep are always in danger without the leadership, without the pasturing of the shepherd. And so when Jesus comes in and says, I'm the good shepherd, Jesus is not only invoking a very common idea here that would have been well understood, Jesus is invoking pronounced and profound Old Testament language. The Israelites would have understood this because often God is referred to as the shepherd. In fact, God calls up shepherds to shepherd. He calls Moses to come and to rescue his people. He calls David to become king of his people. Shepherds in this place. And ultimately, throughout the Psalms, we find again and again language that God is the shepherd. He is the good shepherd. He is the one who comes to our defense. He is the one who comes to our aid. He is the one who, who rescues us from the attacks of the wolves that are amongst us. This God is the shepherd to which we turn. And Jesus comes in in John chapter 10, and he says, I am the good shepherd. He wants us to, to know and to embrace this truth that he is the one who leads us, pastures us, guides us, takes care of us. He helps us when we don't know what to do. He moves us beyond the current circumstances into a future where He is our leader. He is that pastor, that shepherd. And this good shepherd is the shepherd of our lives, but He's the shepherd of this community. And so, very quickly, I want to back up. John chapter 10, let's pick up in verse 1 because Jesus is going to talk more in depth about what this means to be the shepherd, to be the shepherd of your life and the shepherd of his people. 
There's a grander context coming out of John chapter 9 where Jesus is now wanting the Pharisees to hear exactly what he has to say because the Pharisees have thrown a big fuss in John chapter 9 about a healing of a blind man. Now that grander context leads Jesus to make this particular point. Truly I tell you, Pharisees, anyone who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate but climbs in by some other way is a thief and a robber. The one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him, and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name, and he leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them, and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. But they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. We follow the shepherd because we know his voice. One of the most, at least for me, remarkable things about the first five verses of John chapter 10 is the intimacy. It's the intimacy of a shepherd and his sheep. They know the voice of the shepherd. They listen to the voice of the shepherd. And they can just... These are not bright animals. But they can distinguish their shepherd's voice from a stranger's voice. And there is an intimacy for the shepherd to not only know his sheep by their name, but for the shepherd to be able to be present enough, to be around enough, to know them well enough, that these creatures can know the voice. And Jesus calls Himself the shepherd because He knows you. Now whatever you may think of your relationship with Jesus Christ today, you need to know this, He knows you. He is intimately aware of you. Jesus cares for you. Jesus has brought you here at this point, at this time, because Jesus is the good shepherd who, is, who has always been there for you and with you. He is intimately aware of all the junk and the baggage that you think holds you back, and He is intimately aware that you need Him to be safe. And so we have to begin to ask ourselves, are we following the voice of the Good Shepherd or are we people who hear the voices of the strangers more than the voice of Jesus? Have you ever seen a child in a store, for instance, run up to a parent, grab their leg, hug them, and then when they look up and they realize it's not their parent? Have you ever seen the shock and the terror that comes over this child's face in these situations? Now, they've been in the store for a while. They've been around all these strangers, but for the very first time, this child, now holding the stranger's leg, realizes they are amongst strangers. This is what happens when, 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 we, when we begin to see or hear the other voices of strangers, right? Is that we embrace something or someone we don't know. And Jesus is calling His people. And in fact, He's calling the Pharisees, those who think, that they've got it all figured out, the religious people of His day, He's calling them 
to stop embracing the stranger's leg and to realize with shock and awe, I think, that you are not listening to the intimate Son of God, to the, to the Creator of all the universe, the firstborn over all creation. And so we follow Him because we know His voice, because He is the God, He is the Savior. John continues. John 10, verse 7. So Jesus says again, He keeps going with His with his uh, parable here. Truly I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who have come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. See, we follow the Good Shepherd because the Good Shepherd puts genuine, real life examples of Jesus in our lives. We follow leadership that is genuinely real. We follow leadership because they are genuinely and intimately involved with God Himself. And so as we look to as a church of what may be and what could be, as we dream of the future that might be for this community, we dream of a church that raises up leaders that are intimately involved, genuinely real in their faith and in their walk and their relationship with Jesus Christ. Because Jesus is this gatekeeper, he now says. He allows certain people to come into the flock. He allows those that He trusts, that He is aware of, to come and be a part of. He raises up shepherds to pasture. The, the great shepherd or the great, uh, the, the great shepherd of Jesus Christ now becomes the gate who allows genuine, Jesus-like people to be those who can come in to the flock. He gives permission in that. He goes on in John chapter 10. Let's pick up in verse 11. I am the good shepherd, he says. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. Verse 14, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep, and my sheep know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep, I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. And I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice. And there shall be one flock under one shepherd. The reason my Father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down from my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my Father. From my father. Excuse me. Thirdly, we follow the shepherd who lays down for us. Not only is Jesus so intimate with each and every one of us and intimate with His church, 
Not only does Jesus raise up godly leaders within his church and his community in each of our lives, Jesus is the good shepherd because he has died for you. He's willing to go to the cross. He's willing to hold the sin. He's willing to hold the baggage. He's willing to hold the junk. He's willing to lay down his life because he's so intimately involved in your life that he cares so deeply for you that he is willing to give himself for you. So when Jesus goes to the cross, the good shepherd goes to the cross so that you and I may have eternal life, that you and I may have community, that you and I may have the relationship, the genuine real-life relationship with godly people, with a community that seeks something bigger than themselves. Jesus, the good shepherd, goes to the cross for you because he loves you deeply. And he's willing, and he was able, and he went to the cross for you. But he was raised anew in you. He was raised anew in new life, and and death could not hold him down any longer. And Jesus was raised anew so that his sheep could live. I don't know. I don't know where you're related. I don't know how you would describe your relationship with Jesus here today. But someone needs to hear that Jesus, the good shepherd, laid down his life for you. And you have opportunity this very day to 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 lay down your life and be raised new in him again. And in baptism, we do that. In baptism, we we go to the cross with Jesus. We go to the good shepherd and we recognize his voice and we die to the ways of this world. We reprioritize our lives in baptism so that Jesus, the good shepherd, is the only voice we pay attention to. That Jesus, the good shepherd, laid down his life so that you and I could have that opportunity to lay down ours. And the best news of all is that we find life in that death is that we find everlasting, heavenly, eternal life in the death of the Good Shepherd because He comes back. Because life, life dwells and and comes forward through this Good Shepherd. And whatever may lie ahead, Whatever circumstances may come our way, whatever the future may hold, I can tell you this. The Heritage Church will follow the Good Shepherd. And as we dream, and as we plan, we will follow Him. We will follow Him into the pasture. We will follow Him if there's brick and mortar. We will follow Him into the neighborhoods. We will follow Him into this school. We will follow the Good Shepherd when He lays down His life for others because He has done that for us. I've told this story before, but uh, my two youngest children um, several months ago wanted to show me their clean room. So as I came home from work, they told me to close my eyes. And I'm now going to have to walk across the entire house with my eyes closed to go look at a clean room. This is the things you do as a father. 
So I close my eyes, they take my hands, and things are going well until you hit the wall. They led me into a wall. Do you understand? I don't think my two older children would have done this, but my two youngest children, they led me into a wall. I, I, I trusted them. And they led me, do you hear this, guys? You led me into a wall, okay? It hurt. All right? You see, when we follow the voice of the Good Shepherd, I will promise you this. God promises you this. He will take us by the hand and we will blindly go where we don't know where to the future that we are unsure of, to a clean slate and to a pasture that has great godly potential, but God will not lead us into a wall. The good shepherd will protect you. He will lay down his life for you. He will give you all that you can possibly want. The good shepherd has it all because of you. We follow that God. We follow that shepherd. We follow him who has established this church in his name and he has established this community to do godly things in his name because he is the good shepherd. And so as we end this morning, my invitation is quite simple. Will you follow the good shepherd? Will you take your life and give it all to the God who loves you deeply? Are you willing to close your eyes, to walk in faith, and to trust that your God will not lead you into a wall? If there's a need of any kind, I'm going to make myself, make myself available down front this morning. If this church can pray for you, be with you, I'm here this morning. This church is here for you. In this place, at this time, let us follow the Good Shepherd. Let's stand together and let's sing.